We're looking today at Mark chapter 11. You can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. The kiddos are going to tween scenes. I think I got that right this time. Tween scenes. Mark chapter 11. Uh, This is a passage you're all familiar with. You've heard it before. The week before Easter, generally, this is the triumphant entry. Uh, We usually celebrate this, talk about this on Palm Sunday. Uh, But I want to talk to you today about a peaceful insurrection, a peaceful insurrection. On January 6th of last year, hundreds of thousands of people made their way to Washington, D.C., where they protested what they claimed was an illegitimate and fraudulent election. And uh, many of these protesters made their way to the Capitol building and and forced their way in. And uh, there was the Electoral College there trying to uh, certify the votes, the the, uh, outcome of the election. And so I'm assuming, I haven't heard this, but I'm assuming that these protesters were hoping to um, to stop the certification of the election and to demand an investigation. And so this has been, it's been called an insurrection. That's what it's been titled, and we've heard about it for a year. Um, now, the dictionary definition of insurrection is an organized attempt to overthrow a government generally using force. That's a dic- dictionary definition. So I think by definition, this probably wasn't an actual insurrection. It didn't seem very organized. And if it was organized, it looked like the ringleader was a guy wearing a buffalo head. So I'm not sure if it was a true threat to democracy. That's neither here nor there. I think that this story from January 6th is a good jumping off point for us as we investigate the triumphant entry. Now, I'm not at all suggesting today that what they did was honorable or that those people are heroes in any way. I'm also not suggesting that what they did was in the same category as what Jesus did. Um, actually, I believe that what happened on that day was very stupid, and it was wrong. And we can talk about, you, can, you and I can talk about that some other time. We can put our tinfoil hat and talk all about it, but we'll do that some other time. Um, but I do think that it is similar in this way. Uh, the powers that be took this threat very, very seriously, right? And that's why there are several people that were involved in that event that are still in jail today, and they've not even been charged with a crime, but they're still being held Uh, in a jail somewhere. So the powers that be took it very, very, very seriously. In the same way, the powers that be in Jerusalem, they would have picked up on this energy, on the imagery that Jesus is putting down as he marches into Jerusalem. Uh, They would have been very, very, very threatened, and they would have taken very, very seriously the actions of that day. And, And I think you'll see that as we study this passage. Mark chapter 11 Beginning in verse 1, let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say to them, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there, said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What we've just read is a peaceful insurrection. As we impact this, 
I believe that you'll see that this is the beginning of a series of events in which Jesus dismantles the powers that be and uh, in an attempt to establish his heavenly kingdom upon the earth. The people in Jerusalem, they would have seen what Jesus was doing, and they responded to it. Uh, these actions would eventually lead to Jesus' death and ultimately his victory. And I believe that as we study this passage, it will give us an idea of how we fight against the evil powers and principalities of our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for every person that's gathered here. I pray a blessing on each and every one and everybody that's watching online, Lord. We've gathered here because we long for more of you, Lord, and we recognize that we can't do this life without you. So, Lord, please come. We, we've all come together today, and we've, uh, we've got a lot of baggage, history and hang-ups and hurts, and, uh, Lord, we just need you to minister to us. So I pray that you'll speak to us, Lord, the things that we need to hear. I pray that you'll speak through me. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment and pray for those standing around you, just silently. Take a moment and pray for anybody that may be watching online. Take a moment and pray for yourself. And for the sake of my mother, pray for the Cincinnati Bengals. Father, we love you. We long to hear from you. Speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll have to forgive me for that. Um, my mom says she'll take the prayers. So make her life. If they win, it'll make her life, not just her day or her year, her life. Very important. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, they, they approached Jerusalem. Uh, and so I want to give you the chronology. I think it's important leading up to this moment. You'll remember last week we talked about a blind beggar. Jesus is rolling through Jericho. He's got it in fifth gear, and he's just zooming through. Uh, they're not stopping at the outlet malls. They're not stopping at Cracker Barrel. No bathroom breaks. We're going to Jerusalem. We're getting there as quick as we can. You remember this. As they're traveling through um, Jericho, a blind man named Bartimaeus, he cries out to Jesus, and he uses a unique title. It, Bartimaeus is the only person besides Jesus that uses this title. And he cries out to him. He says, Son of David, Son of David. Now, this is a messianic title. This is the title of a person. The Old Testament talking about this person for hundreds of years. All the Jewish people have been looking forward to this king who would come and make all the wrongs right and set up this earthly kingdom, bring salvation to the world. And so blind Bartimaeus, who can't see, he recognizes Jesus for who he really is. And he says, Son of David, promised king, have mercy on me. Now, up to this point, Jesus' ministry, you'll remember this, up to this point, anytime anybody made reference to Jesus as the promised king, as the son of God, as the savior of the world, what would Jesus do? He would say, I don't want you talking about that. Remember? He would tell people time and time again, don't tell anybody what's happened. And, and his response to that, the reason he was telling people that, he'd say, it's not my time. But for Bartimaeus, Jesus doesn't quiet him. And actually, he encourages it. He, he calls Bartimaeus to him. He heals Bartimaeus, and then he allows Bartimaeus to travel with him. Again, up to this point, anytime Jesus healed somebody, they would say, can we follow you? And Jesus said, no, I want you to stay where you are and tell everybody what God has done for you. But Bartimaeus, he lets come with him. And so this marks a transition in Jesus's ministry and in his mission. And so what scholars believe is that Bartimaeus, he follows Jesus along with the rest of the crowd up the hill to Jerusalem. 
And as they're going, Bartimaeus, because he's loud and he's boisterous, and you remember, nobody could get him to shut up, no matter how they warned him. And so Bartimaeus is declaring Jesus to be the king. And in a way, he's serving as a propagandist. And so the energy is building around Jesus as they're climbing the mountain. Now they get to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is within uh, eyeshot of Jerusalem. Actually, if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, it's probably taken from the Mount of Olives. It sets up just a little bit higher. And uh, on the east side, before you get to the crest and you see Jerusalem, on the east side of the Mount of Olives are a couple little towns, Bethany and Bethpage. And so that's where we see Jesus and his disciples, and they're there. And uh, they, they get there probably on Friday, Bethany, uh, probably on Friday, maybe Saturday. They spend the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they're good friends with Jesus, and so they let him stay at his house. Now, a lot of people the next day, and maybe Saturday, some scholars say Sunday, a lot of people from Jerusalem, they came down to Bethany because they wanted to meet this man who had been raised from the dead, and they definitely wanted to meet Jesus who raised him from the dead. And so there's a huge crowd of people in Bethany, and then they turn around, and they're all going to go back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to set up a procession leading back into Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 2, he sent two of his disciples, and he told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. This begins a series of events in which Jesus is going to boldly proclaim himself to be the king in opposition to all the other kings. So he's, he's going to march into Jerusalem and say to all the powers and all the principalities, all the authorities, you are not in charge, I'm in charge. Now that's a bold statement because we're talking about the Roman Empire and, and they are... Basically, the empire in charge of, they co- their empire covers most of the known world. And Jesus is saying to the Roman authorities, to the Jewish authorities, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. You're not the king, I'm the king. That's a bold move. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm rolling into what the Bible says is the capital of the world, Jerusalem, and I'm t- telling the powers that be, I'm the king, I'm not rolling in there on a donkey. You see, a- another, another story biography of Jesus tells the same event, and it tells us that this wasn't the colt of a horse. This was the colt of a donkey. Do you remember the, uh, the movie Shrek? You remember Donkey from the movie Shrek? And he was goofy and silly, and he couldn't protect himself. He was a big coward. He was a chicken, and so he, that's why he liked Shrek so much. And so if I'm rolling into Jerusalem saying I'm the king, I'm not riding in on Donkey, right? If I have miraculous powers like Jesus, I'm going to resurrect a T-Rex, and I'm rolling in on a T-Rex if I'm riding on anything, right? So what's going on here? Why is Jesus riding on a donkey? Uh, Around the same time, history tells us, every year the Romans would do something. Uh, They had a tradition on the week of Passover, and they would have a procession into the city. This generally happened from the west side. Jesus is coming from the east side. And so uh, from the west side of the city, uh, the governor of this province at this point would be Pilate, they would roll into the city during the week of Passover, generally at the, the beginning of the week of Passover. Now, this was an important time for Rome. You remember that Rome, their, their, military, their empire was expansive. It was huge. And so they, they came up, they devised strategies to keep the local population at bay. And one of the things they would, they would do is they would often show their force. And so um, you remember that the Passover feast is a celebration of Israel's independence from slavery in Egypt. And so this is a very uh, nationalistic, there's a lot of patriotism. for the, It's like our 4th of July is their Passover. And you'll remember that Rome is oppressive towards the Jewish people. They hate the Romans. 
And so there's a lot of political energy. There's a lot of nationalistic energy. There's a revolutionary energy every Passover feast. And so what the Romans would do to kind of to quiet them, to kind of put them in their place, they would have a military parade. And so out in front of the governor would be hundreds of soldiers, and they're all dressed in the nines. They got their armor on. They got their weapons of war. Behind the governor, there would be a ton of armed soldiers. They've got their armor on. They've got their weapons of war. And there in the middle is the governor. He's surrounded by all of his military men. And what's he riding? Not a donkey. Not a donkey. He's riding a horse, the biggest, strongest horse that he can find. Because horses in this day is a weapon of war. Okay, so from the east side, you got that procession. But then from the east side, there's another procession, and Jesus is riding a donkey. So what's up with that? Hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, a prophet looked into the, f- the future. He saw a vision from God of a king that would come. And this king would win a, device, a decisive victory and bring salvation to the people of God. Now, I want to read to you these words. We're going to be Bible nerds today. Are you cool with that? A lot of Bible knowledge today. Everybody cool with that? Three of you? Okay. Eric, got my back. I appreciate it, brother. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. So there's a king, and he's coming. He's a promised king. And this king is going to be righteous. Everything he does is right. You can never question his motives. Every decision he makes is wise. You can never question his intelligence. He's right in every way. He's righteous and he's victorious. He will accomplish his purposes. Nothing can stop him. He's righteous and he's victorious. And he's, he's our king and he's coming. How do we know that he's arrived? Humble and riding on a donkey. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. Humble and riding on a donkey. Not just a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Comes in humble. Okay. And then when he comes in, Once he comes in, this is what's going to happen. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be removed. And so what Zechariah says about this promised king is that he's going to win a victory so decisively that there'll be no more need for chariots. There'll be no more need for weapons of war. There'll be no more need for uh, horses of war. All that stuff will go away. How is he going to win such an incredible victory? He will proclaim peace to the nations. That's his strategy. He's going to proclaim peace. And what's going to be the outcome of him proclaiming peace, of preaching peace to the nations, of saying, I come in peace? His dominion will extend from sea to sea. Now, these seem contrary, don't they? These seem like they don't go together. He's going to have dominion from sea to sea. As far as you can imagine, his dominion is going to stretch across the earth. How's he going to have that dominion? He's going to come in peace. How's that going to work? We'll come back to it. I want you to hold on to it. Hold on to it. We'll come back to it. Verse 3, Mark chapter 11. So this is what we're seeing. Jesus has set up a counter-processional. You see that? Uh, Pilate, the governor of Rome, he comes in, and he is surrounded by war men. And he's riding on a war horse. And he comes showing force. Jesus, the true king, he comes in surrounded not by war men, surrounded by worshipers. And he doesn't come in riding a war horse. He comes in riding a sign of peace, a donkey. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. And so Jesus, again, he's laying down. This is the first time he's acted this way. This is a, this is a shift 
This is a shift in his strategy. Uh, he's laying down king vibes. This is king energy. Uh, this is what's known as eminent domain, and it still happens even in our day. But in, in that day, it was very prevalent, and a person in power could commandeer your possessions and use it to accomplish their purposes. And so that's what we see. Jesus is saying, okay, uh, if somebody asks you why you're taking the donkey, then you say to them, the Lord, which is uh, the Greek word kurios, and it can be translated all sorts of different ways. It can be translated Lord. It can be translated master. It can be translated sovereign. This is what Jesus is saying. The king needs the horse. The king needs the donkey. These are king, this is king energy, verse 4 and 5. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And so Jesus, through his ambassadors, he goes on a private property, and he finds the key you've got hidden in the back wheel well in the magnet box, you know what I'm talking about? And he gets the key out, and then he goes, and he opens the door, they got the, and they're about to get in the car, and the owner of the car says, hey, hold up, what are you doing? Get into my car, and which is, you know, a valid question. Verse 6, they answered them just as Jesus had said, just as Jesus has said. And so they said, you know, the king needs the donkey, and they let him go. Why'd they let him go? We don't know. There's a lot of theories about it. Maybe Jesus had prearranged this event. Maybe they were just aware of Jesus, and they approved of his mission, and they just wanted to help. Either way, uh, these people could not resist Jesus's request. They could not resist Jesus's request, and chances are they considered it a great honor to serve the king. Verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Okay, now uh, remember, this is a donkey who had never been ridden before. Okay, a couple things there. Uh, the reason kings in that day, they didn't ride on anyone else's horse or donkey. Because to ride on someone else's horse or donkey would be to suggest that you got to your position of power on the back of somebody else. And so uh, Solomon is King David's son. You remember Solomon? And he was declared king, and he rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Okay? But when he rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, David said, I want him riding on my donkey. This was a, say, a way to say, he's becoming the king because he's my son. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that's never been ridden before as a way to say, I am coming on my own authority. I'm coming on the power of my own will. Okay, now, the downside of riding a donkey that's never been ridden before is it's not broken in. Now, I'm no horseman. We have some horse women here, and I'm sure that they can correct me after Amanda can, you gladly correct me after this, but every Western that I've seen, if somebody gets on a horse that's never been ridden before, that horse becomes a bucking bronco, and it becomes a wild west rodeo, right? And if you can last on it for eight seconds, you win the prize. That's what I understand. Is that, that's right? Okay, amen. Totally true. So here's the thing. Jesus gets on the donkey. They put the clothes on it. Jesus climbs up on it, but the donkey doesn't fight back. Doesn't become a bucking bronco. Doesn't become a wild dress rodeo. He immediately subdues the donkey, and they ride in to Jerusalem. It's an important thought. We'll come back to it. Verse eight. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Okay, so there's many people. It says many people. The whole city was aware and affected by this procession. And Matthew chapter 21 tells the same story from a different vantage point. Verse 10, we read this. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. They were in an uproar saying, who is this? And so there is, there is a massive amount of energy and interest 
and intrigue, and people are getting stirred. Some people are getting stirred, and they hate it. Some people are getting stirred, and they love it. The people that love it, they spread their clothes on the ground. You remember last week, blind Bartimaeus, he had a cloak on, and he threw the cloak off in order to make a way for him to get to Jesus. You remember this. So maybe kind of similar energy, similar vibes. The crowd, they take off their coats, and they lay it on the ground before Jesus in order to make a way for Jesus to get into Jerusalem. If they didn't have a coat, they would go and they, they'd take palm branches off the trees and they lay it on the ground. And this is like red carpet treatment. This isn't the first time that this has happened. 800 years before Jesus, uh, Israel had a wicked king who was the son of a wicked king named Ahab. Now God wanted to overthrow the wicked king, and so he rose up, he rose up another king. Uh, the prophet uh, sent his messenger to Commander Jehu. And the prophet's messenger came, and he said, Jehu, I need to have a word with you. They went inside the house, and uh, the prophet anointed Jehu with oil. And he said to Jehu, I now pronounce you in the name of the Lord, the next king of Israel. And then he ran out the door. So this was a major scene, a very weird situation. So the commander's men, Jehu's men, they asked him about it. What happened? Eventually they found out that he had just been anointed king. Now I want you to see what their response was. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They, threw ram's, they blew ram's horns and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing here? And so, so this is what's happening. Jesus has organized his entry into Jerusalem to resemble the coronation of a king. The people of Jerusalem, they have recognized exactly what Jesus is doing, and many people are affirming him as their king. Okay, verse 9. Those who went ahead and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Come back to it in a second. Verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Isn't that similar to what Bartimaeus said down in Jericho? Son of David. Blessed is the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they're quoting here, from the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a song book. And so uh, you, you, you know this, that we memorize songs a lot better than we memorize just words. And that's why many of you, you can quote the lyrics to songs a lot better than you can quote scriptures. True? So I could start the beginning of a song and you could probably finish it, right? Like stop, collaborate, and listen. Yes. I didn't do it first service because I didn't think anybody would flow with me, but thank you. You've made my day. I would sing, but my wife is here, and she always laughs at me when I sing. And I would hate to be embarrassed by starting to sing a song and you not catch the tune because I'm tone deaf and say, I don't know what you're talking about. But here's the deal. We can all quote these songs. And so that's what's going on. And, and when you quote a song, even a line from the song, then you, you pick up on the, the message of the whole song. And it sets the tone for whatever the conversation is that you're having. Okay. So... That's exactly what's happening here. They quote just a line from the song, and this is a way to draw attention back to the song. Now, I want to I read the song to you. I said we're being Bible nerds today. You guys said you were cool with it, so here we go. Psalm 118. This is what the crowd has in mind, maybe even chanting this song. They would chant this song every Passover. This may be what's in their mind as they're walking to Jerusalem with Jesus. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Beginning in verse 8, Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And so this psalm is setting up a contrast between the rulers of the world and God as king. 
And so what the psalmist is saying is, yeah, you can trust in the princes. You can trust in the kings. You can trust in human beings. You can do that. It's not going to work out for you very well. You can trust in, you know, the chief priests and the scribes and the Roman authorities and the emperors. You can trust in them. You can trust in the presidents and, you know, the, you can trust in Donald Trump or DeSantis or Pelosi or Biden. But listen to me. They're going to fail you. That's what this psalm is saying. It is better. You're going to have a better outcome if you trust in God as your king. Verse 10. Here's why. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees. I was outnumbered, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. Not war horses, not weapons of war, not AR-15s, not tanks, not bazookas. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. When Jesus ascended to heaven, where did he go? To the right hand of the Father. Okay, what has the right hand of the Father, what has he done? Look at verse 17. I will not die, but live. Wow. I will not die, but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Who is this psalm about? It's Jesus. This is Jesus. Chastened me severely. Our punishment was on him, but he was not given over to death. Death did not control him. The grave did not have the final say. He did not die. He lived. And so the large crowd is singing this ancient war chant. This is a victory song, and they're singing it as they walk into Jerusalem. And, and as they enter the gates, verse 19, listen, open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks, give you thanks, for you answer me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, the world, even Jesus' own people, they all rejected him, but he became the cornerstone, the foundation of life. The Lord has done this, and it is, his, it's, it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Hosanna. Hosanna, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made us his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the feastal procession up to the horns of the altar. So as, as they're marching into Jerusalem, they're hailing Jesus as the promised king. This is, the Lord is my salvation, and here he is, lowly and riding on a colt, the, don, the, the, the colt of a donkey. Here he is, the one we've been waiting on, the one that would bring salvation. My enemies surrounded me, but this man, the Lord and the Savior, he cut him down. He saved me, and here he is. And we are marching to Jerusalem. We're going to the horn of the altar. Join in the procession. Join. Everybody's invited. Join in the feastal procession. Where is the horn of the altar? It's located in the temple. Where does this procession that Jesus leads, where does it end? Verse 11, Mark chapter 11. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. 
After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus coming in to a king, as a king, and he goes to what his palace is going to be, the temple. It's from this place that he'll rule and reign. Now, this is kind of anticlimactic in a way, because they have this procession, and they go to the temple, and then it's just kind of over. But the way I envision it is that the crowd, uh, they, they get to the edge of the temple. They're standing there on the steps. Everybody stays outside, but Jesus goes in by himself. And it's, it's empty. It's dark. Everybody's left. It's late. So Jesus is standing in this room by himself, and it, and it reminds me of the scenes in the movies, you know, those epic war movies where the king is about to lead his people in the battle, and it's the night before the battle, and he climbs up on the hill, and, and the battle's going to take place there in this field below, and, and the king envisions victory. And I, I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing, because over the next week, the last week of Jesus' life, he would win the victory over darkness and death. How? How did he win the victory? He provoked the powers at be to the point that they had no choice but to kill him. That was his strategy. That's what we're going to see over the next several months as we unpack the last week of Jesus' life. Time after time after time, Jesus provokes the powers that be to the point that they had no choice but to kill him. Now, that doesn't look like victory to me. How does that win the victory? How is that such a decisive victory that there's no more wars? He allowed evil to have its way with him. The full force of their fury was laid upon Christ everything they could throw at him to destroy him. They put it on him, didn't hold anything back, and it didn't kill him. It did not kill. Evil could not kill him. And so that's why the coming of Zechariah's peaceful, promised king marks the end of all war. Watch this. If the cross won't kill him, what will war horses and bows do to him? If the cross can't kill him, what's a nuclear weapon going to do to Jesus? And so he is the king that has come to make peace, and you can't stop him. He, has, he is the king that has come to make peace, and no one can stop him. He is the king that has come to make peace, and nothing can stop him. And so you might as well let him have your cult. You see it? You might as well lay down your coats and make a red carpet to usher him in. You might as well bless his name because he is the resurrected king. He is the lion of Judah. He is the promised savior. His dominion will stretch from sea to sea. His glory will cover the earth. At his name, every knee will bow. Same story different biography, the religious people, they see all this imagery and they understand Jesus is proclaiming himself to be king and all of his followers are singing his praises as the king. And this makes the religious powers that be, it makes them furious and very threatened. And so they approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, you need to stop your disciples. You need to rebuke them. Look at what Jesus said. Luke chapter 19, verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Nothing will stop the coronation of Jesus Christ as king. And so you might as well let him have his way. You might as well let him have his way. And Jesus 
having his way is a good thing. This is where a lot of Christians in 2022, they miss the mark. I don't understand what the disconnect is, but Jesus having his way in every sphere of life is a positive thing. You start talking like that in 2022, and you'll be labeled what's known as a Christian nationalist. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Christian nationalist is a derogatory. It's an insult to be a Christian nationalist. But as Christians, shouldn't we want to live in a place where everyone submits to Christ and and we're governed by the law of the Lord? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what the heavenly city looks like? And so wouldn't we want to usher in heaven? You, everything, everything you give to Christ, he's going to give back to you, but it's going to be better. You give him a lowly donkey, and he gives you back a noble steed. You, you give him your life, and he gives you back peace and purpose. You lay down your coats, and he clothes you with righteousness and joy. It is only when everyone submits to heaven's king that we will experience the heavenly kingdom. Let me say that again. It is only when everyone and everything submits to heaven's king that we will experience the heavenly kingdom. Now, I've told you this time and time again. I hope that you can see it, but we're in a war. You get that. We're in a war, and and the war is happening all around us. And it's coming at us from every single angle. There are people that hate God. They hate the name of Jesus. They hate his bride, the church. And they'll do everything they can to stop him. They'll do everything they can to slow him down. It's everywhere. I told you last week about how Canada just passed a bill that targets pastors. And pastors that break this law, they they are by law not allowed to call certain people to repentance. They're not allowed by law to call certain things sin even though the Bible clearly says that it's sin, and it's punishable up to five years in prison. In China, right now, the Chinese Communist Party, they are cutting crosses off the top of churches. If a church isn't state-sanctioned, they will go in and blow the church up and bulldoze it. They'll arrest pastors and torture them for years and years in prison just for preaching the gospel. There are certain places in the world you have to smuggle in Bibles. It's happening all around us, and it's happening here in America. In Iowa, just a few weeks ago, there was a city council that passed a law that that states it is illegal for a a non-certified clinician to give any sort of counseling. Who's that targeting? Pastors. It's illegal for pastors to give counseling in this state, in this city. This is happening in America. I could give you all sorts of examples. And then we watch the news. We watch our Twitter feed, we watch our Facebook feed, and we're concerned, we're rightfully concerned, and we're alarmed. And this is the question we ask, how do we fight back? How do we fight back? Well, we can try force. We could. Some of y'all got some gun safes bigger than my house. There's no telling what you got stored in there. Bazookas, grenade launchers, big old guns. We can just gather up all the guns and then just march right down there and kick the door down and say, okay, now we're in charge. We can do it. But then what? Does that solve anything? Does that solve anything? Haven't, at that point, haven't we just exchanged one group of tyrants for another group of tyrants? At that point? Because all the stuff that causes division, all the stuff that causes war, all the stuff that causes hate, it's, it's all still there. The things in the heart of men that make, heaven, or make earth look like hell It's all still there. It's not going to end anything. It may just delay, right? 
And so how do we win the culture war in such a decisive way that all the weapons of war are no longer needed? We can put them all away. How do we do that? Now, this is what I would suggest. I wouldn't suggest that you get rid of all your guns and you just let all the communists come and take all your things. I'm not suggesting that. I'm also not suggesting that we dig a cave somewhere and stockpile it with a bunch of goods and just hunker down until Jesus comes back. That's not what I'm suggesting. I do believe that we need a strategy that is totally counterintuitive, a strategy that Jesus modeled. And it begins with the understanding that the outcome is not in doubt. It begins with the understanding that the outcome is not in doubt. You see, Jesus isn't running for office. He does not need anyone's vote. You understand that? He does not need anyone's approval or validation. Jesus Christ is king. Now, he has already been given the name above every name. He is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has already won the victory. And so the outcome isn't in doubt. We, we know what happens. And our job is to be his heralds. Have you ever wondered, God, why didn't you just zoom me up? All the people Jesus healed, all the people Jesus healed, they said, Jesus, can we go with you? And Jesus said, no, I want you to stay right where you are. And I want you to tell everybody what God has done for you. In the same way, why did, Jesus, why didn't you just zoom me up to heaven, Star Trek trial, just, just like turn me into a pillar of gold dust and just zoom me right up to heaven as soon as I got baptized? Why am I still here? Because God's got a mission for you. He's got a mission. You're supposed to be his ambassadors. And so let us have this, uh, this heart to be an ambassador for Christ. We are his, his heralds, and our job is to proclaim to the nations that Jesus Christ is king. And so let us give up our colts. Let us lay down our coats. Let us raise up our voices and let us tear down every single stronghold. If I have to relinquish my possessions to advance his kingdom, that's a privilege. If I have to get my hands dirty to spread his fame, that's an honor. If I have to get loud so that people will listen, that's fine. If I have to make people uncomfortable in order to tear down their idols, that's evangelism. Now, these are Jesus' marching orders. This is how we change the world. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, verse 18 and following. This is the last thing that Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me. Is that future tense? Has been given to me. This was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the king. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. Everything, everything is under his sovereignty. Everything. Jesus is the Lord of economics. Jesus is the Lord of business. Jesus is the Lord of entertainment. Jesus is the Lord of marriage. Jesus is the Lord of education. Jesus is the Lord of anything that you want to fill in the blank. Jesus is the Lord of all. Already, he has authority over all things. He has been given authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, there is no place in which Jesus is not king, king of all. Okay, so what do we do with that? Okay, what's our marching orders? Here we go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe 
everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. If Jesus is king, if he's Lord of all, then why are you in despair? Why are you wringing your hands about the stuff that you see on Facebook and Twitter and the news? Why are you wringing your hands worried? Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Our job, our job is to stop wringing our hands. We don't need to make America great again. We don't need to do that. You know what we need to do? We need to make America Christian. That's what we need to do. We need to make America Christian. Winning the war against evil is all about advancing the kingdom of God, which is all about evangelizing every man, woman, and child, encouraging them to submit to Jesus Christ as their king. So let us follow our victorious king into his inevitable and eternal kingdom. Let us lay down our pride, surrender our will, and bless his name. Let us proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of all as boldly and as clearly as possible, just like they did on Palm Sunday. And let us invite people from every tribe and tongue and nation to join the victory parade and submit to our King. Then, and only then, will we experience heaven on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that you'll forgive us all for when, Lord, we have tried to build our own kingdom instead of submit to yours. Lord, you are king of all kings. You are Lord of all. Your name is above every name. And we, Lord, should desert, we should bow before you in every sphere of our life. We should give over to you everything. And when we do that, Lord, our life is a blessed life. Lord, we, we step into salvation when we submit to you to help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you'll bless our time, Lord, as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're singing a song of invitation, a song of celebration, and a song of remembrance. If you haven't taken the emblems yet, uh, we have crackers and juice on either side of the stage. These represent the body and the blood of Christ. As you take these emblems, be reminded that Jesus took on all that evil could throw at him. He took it all for your sake. All the weapons of destruction and evil was placed on him, but it did not kill him. It did not kill him. And in the same way that it did not kill him, it will not kill you. In the same way that he won the victory, he has given you the victory. And so you take these emblems and be reminded that Jesus Christ is your king and you have nothing to fear. As we sing this song, if you're here today and you need to be prayed for, please come, kneel at the altar, let one of our prayer warriors pray over you. If you're here today and you're far from Christ, will you please come talk to one of us and let us tell you more about Jesus. As we sing this song, come.